the Virtual Band Director Conference. This is a 24-7 resource for you, band directors all over the world. I'm your host, John Liner. Let's get this party started. Episode 8, Beginner Saxophone Pedagogy with Jim Shaw. Tonight, we have the pleasure of having um, an educator I found out about was introduced to last summer at uh, West Texas A&M University's uh, summer camp. And I walk into this man's sectional and it's like the most energetic, hilarious, informative sectional. The kids are locked in and Jim Shaw is on fire. Like this man is, he, he's just incredible. So I'm thrilled to, to, for you all to be able to learn from him tonight. So uh, please join me in welcoming the wonderful Mr. Jim Shaw with Beginning Saxophone Pedagogy. Thank you. <laughs> All of um, you. <laughs> I feel a lot of pressure now. Um, I'm excited to be here and honored to uh, to have John ask me to do this. I hope that uh, you feel like your hour to hour and a half is spent well. Um, you know, when he first called me, uh, I told or, or emailed me. I, I had to confess to him. I because of the situation at my school and how many classes we have and, and all the different campuses we go to, I only get to teach the beginning saxophone class every three or four years. So uh, I, had, I sat down and kind of wrote out some things that I would want to say and realized I kind of still had some stuff I could share. And I, I hope you'll find that it's, it's worth sharing um, tonight. Uh, I teach in Tomball, which is uh, northwest of Houston. It's a, it's a town growing up into a city. And uh, I teach at Willowwood Junior High, which is a seven and eight campus. And um, we have about 300 students in our program in grades seven and eight. And then we're fed by two intermediate schools that have uh, between them about another 300 sixth graders in band. Um, all of us who are the junior high directors are also fortunate to be able to go out and teach our beginning classes, our own beginners with help from our high school staff. So uh, we all still have a, a great hand in beginners and it will hopefully continue to be that way for a long time because um, you, I'm sure you understand the importance and, and the value that we feel in being able to, to get to know those kids from the very beginning. Uh, so I do have kind of a PowerPoint thing for two reasons. One, it keeps me on track. And two, uh, you don't have to stare at me the entire time I'm talking to you. And I'm going to go ahead and pull that up. And hopefully, John, y'all can see that now that I hit the share button. Yes, we got it. All right, great. And I'm going to go ahead and start. Now, I titled this, It's Not Just Saxophone, because I've been guilty of this, and I've heard many of my colleagues guilty of this. You know, like we'll get together our staff and talk about beginners and we'll say well the flutes I just can't get the kids up there into that third octave like I want to and the, the clarinets are having trouble crossing the break and man the brass I just can't get them to articulate the way I want and then somebody will say what about the saxophones and somebody will say oh it's just saxophone they'll be fine you know but um, I think uh, as the NEA shared with us during music in our schools week a few years ago it ain't just saxophone. You know, there's there's a lot of potential there to uh, to do some real damage if we neglect this instrument, just like with others. And so um, the first part of my uh, presentation, I'm going to not just saxophone pedagogy, maybe so much as the beginning saxophone class. And we're very fortunate in our system. And I have been throughout my career, with the exception of maybe one year, uh, to have like instrument classes. So a lot of this uh, tonight is structured as if you have a saxophone class or you have a class like we currently have, which is saxophone double read, where you have to kind of juggle between the two, but you can give a lot of attention to that instrument. And um, so the 
first part of the clinic really that I'd like to cover with you tonight is how we set up the structure of that class and what we do to establish an atmosphere where we can teach our kids and our kids can learn uh, most effectively. But before that, I thought the first thing I would do before maybe there were as many people on here to get controversial with was talk about equipment. And we do provide our, our community, our parents and our students uh, with a recommended instrument list. Uh, we work closely with, we have two major music stores in our area that we work closely with. We try to make sure we can provide stuff that both of them have access to. Uh, there are other good brands and models and, and things out there that people are using in the world that uh, they are very successful with. Uh, these are just happen to be the things that we use at our feeders at Willowwood Junior High. So for alto saxophone, we ask for a Yamaha. That's the most current model. The model right before this, the 23, is also great. And then because one of our vendors is not a Yamaha dealer, because of something that happened a long time ago that's not even the current owner's fault, uh, we also ask for the Selmer uh, saxophone, which is also a great model. And then, of course, we'll also have some older instruments come in, like cons and and uh, things like that that are also fine. Great. Uh, mouthpiece, I've had really good success uh, with the Van Doren Optimum. And then I also am a big fan of the Selmer C-Star. With reeds, uh, we used a Dario Reserve. Uh, we started on two and a halfs. We also really like uh, Van Doren's. Uh, the, my experience with uh, Dodario's is if you have a box of 10 reeds, 10 of them out of the box are going to be very consistent. And of course, with beginners, that is really important. Uh, ligature really doesn't, in my mind, make as much a difference as some of the, as like the mouthpiece does. But we do recommend our students have uh, this particular inverted ligature. For one, it's an affordable inverted ligature. And because, as we'll get into when we talk about putting reeds on mouthpieces, when you can have common ligatures in your classes as much as possible, that is a big uh, lifesaver. And then the next strap we recommend um, isn't really that big a deal, but mainly my experience with the padded neck straps is that if a child is height challenged, um, sometimes the pads, the neck pads on those neck straps go down so far that they can't raise their neck strap up far enough to bring the saxophone to their mouth in the right at the right angle or even in the right place. And they end up kind of having to go through gymnastics to uh, play the saxophone or they end up having to hold it up, which defeats the purpose of the neck strap anyway. So we recommend, we go down to micromanaging even to the level of a neck strap, just so that our, our more height challenge kids right out of fifth grade uh, aren't dealing with things that are, you know, they're gonna eventually hopefully grow out of. And again, there are a lot of great brands, and we do occasionally have the kid who shows up with the saxophone that his parents bought at the same store that you can buy tires and, you know, bulk groceries. Um, and we do have kids that show up with a different mouthpiece or an older horn that grandpa played. And uh, in cases like that, you know, we try to work with them. If it's something that's really going to hinder the kid, uh, we'll talk to the parent. But ultimately, we're there to teach kids and Sometimes those kids who are providing those lower quality instruments need band way more than band needs them. And so we would never, you know, exclude a kid from our beginner class or from our program just because they don't go off of these recommendations for whatever reason. Okay, so this part setting the scene, I'm basically talking about how do we set up our class where we can have maximum success learning and teaching. And so, of course, we're going to start with our first day which for us is kind of, as you can see, a dog and pony show. And um, basically on the first day, all of our beginners start in the same room. Okay, so we'll have a class that'll be the saxophone class, the percussion class, 
the double reeds and the flutes, first period, North Point Intermediate. Well, I'll be in the, the room all on the same day, and I basically get to play entertainer uh, with, uh, with sometimes some degrees of varying success. And my job that day is to make them feel really great about joining band <laughs> and the fact that they made a decision to be there. And also to kind of help them get started while my wonderful team of coworkers is pulling out those kids who didn't make it to an instrument selection meeting, just moved in, placing them on instruments and sending it and getting information to send home, um, talking to kids who maybe are scheduled into the wrong class and should be in the clarinet class period, second period instead of first, and just basically doing housekeeping so that we are ready to start band class on the second day of school. Uh, I'm going over just very general rules and whatever procedures they need to know in order to function for that class period, be able to walk out the door in an orderly manner and be able to come back and start class the next day. So this is not the time we're going to talk about. This is how we move music from the ones from from one piece to another. This is how you will, um, you know, leave the band hall in terms of your chairs and your stands. This is where we're just talking about. Here's when you can ask questions. Here's when you'll here's how we'll leave the room today. Here's how you'll come back tomorrow. And if we're having them bring instruments on the second day of school, how you'll drop them off and, and all that stuff. And then instead of just going sending home 7,000 forms and overwhelming the poor children and their parents, they get one half page letter that has a link to the band website on it and a special page on the band website where they can order their t-shirt, sign up to volunteer, join the booster club, sign up in private lessons. It's one-stop shopping, which for those of us who've been teaching for any length of time know before collection of papers could take up to three days away from your class by the time you added up all those hours. So then we get to the fun part, which is day two. And by usually by the second day of school, uh, our kids are ready to start bringing instruments or receive their instruments if they were delivered to the school. Now that definitely does not mean we're gonna play on the second day of school, but we wanna start seeing who has their stuff and what kind of equipment they have. Uh, we actually won't play for a few days, maybe even up to that first, into that first week if we're starting on Monday or Tuesday. And uh, we're taking time, of course, to learn their names, get to know a little bit about them, um, kind of start talking about some of the stuff I'm talking about right now in terms of how our class is going to work. And then most importantly, we're going through their instruments and their cases, and we're looking to see, you know, what model saxophone do you have? Uh, is it in good condition? Uh, do you have a mouthpiece that's going to allow you to, to be successful? Uh, what kind of reads are in this case right now? And if there are issues, uh, we'll either contact the parent or in some cases, if it's if it's supplied by our music store, uh, we'll contact the music store on the parent's behalf. We have really good road guys and we'll actually just compile a list. These seven kids have a stock mouthpiece uh, instead of what we're asking for. These three kids got number four reads um, and they'll deliver it all for us at the, to the school. We're very fortunate. And then we'll begin teaching, like many of you, I'm sure, very basic achievable concepts and I'm talking basic like how to sit in the chair uh, maybe a easy breathing exercise uh, we'll talk about start very basic theory things that they're going to hopefully catch on to very quickly and feel it successful and excited about coming back to learn more because uh, of course they all they're all about the instrument and they think they're going to be playing careless whisper by the end of the first week so uh, you have to do a lot there to kind of keep them engaged and keep them motivated and excited to come back 
So when we talk about class culture, and these are kind of the pillars uh, in my mind, we're talking about the director's expectations, how we handle discipline, and there's kind of two parts to that. How we pace, which I think is really important. And then that pacing along with just how we keep the kids engaged and how we're getting information into their brains are probably the two most critical parts of setting up your class culture. And I know you're here to talk saxophone, so I'll try to go through this pretty quickly, but I do think it's a really important part of what we do. As far as expectations, we I boiled them down into, you know, very obviously the short-term goals for the class, what are our long-term goals for them, both as people and musicians, and what are the non-negotiable things that we're going to be relentless about every day. And it's helpful to kind of sit down as a young teacher uh, and make a list with those three things, three lists. And here's some examples, really obvious things. A short-term goal would be to learn how to sit in the chair or identify notes on a staff, or be able to count four quarter notes. They're going to normally achieve that pretty quickly. Longer term goals would be like, what kind of range do we want them to be able to play? And with it with a characteristic sound by the end of the year, what rhythm should they be familiar with by the time they get to the end of the beginner year? And what time signatures, how many scales and, and how much range of those scales are you going to want them to know? And then non-negotiables, these are just a few of my own. You must have your materials every day. You're going to tap your foot when you play and when you count. And when you count, we're going to verbally pulse. We're not going to pulse when we play necessarily, but when we um, count long notes or anything longer than an eighth note, we're going we're gonna to pulse with our voices in that eighth note pulse. So those, that's just kind of a few examples of some things uh, there. Marcy Zafudo was a fantastic teacher who passed away several years ago here in Texas. And um, she would always say that when it comes to your expectations, you have to be persistently insistent. And I keep that in my brain a lot. I was fortunate to work with her at the camp that, that John mentioned for several years uh, with one of the junior high bands. And um, I heard her say that a ton. Discipline really has two parts. Proactive discipline is what we set up in advance to kind of make sure that the class is going to be structured the way that we want. Uh, this breaks down into to, to me into two things rules and procedures rules are very general uh, They should not paint you into a corner usually when we say we have rules It's because we had to post them on the wall because our administrators are going to look for them in a walkthrough uh, These are the rules that hang on the wall at Willowwood and at our intermediate schools and you can see um, they're very general and um, There are things that you can apply almost anything that happens in the course of a class that uh, you don't want to be happening is going to fall under the umbrella of one of these. So uh, um, I don't know if there's people that are only listening in. I'll read these really quickly. Rule one, be in the right place at the right time with the right materials and the right attitude. Rule two, don't do anything to interfere with the ability of yourself or others to learn. Three, don't do anything to interfere with the ability of the directors to teach. And four, be excellent or at your best. Two and four, each other. And, you know, there's not... I can't think of a conceivable situation that comes up in a class where you can't point to one of those or more and talk to the kid about, about uh, how they're not meeting your expectations. And then the other thing that goes along with rules is our procedures. This is how we do things. And it's very important, I think, that you teach these as they're needed, not all at once, and that you need to be prepared to model and reinforce and practice anything that's important enough to lay a procedure in place, like how we come in the room even. Um, until it's good and the more and you may feel like you're spending a lot of time on it and you may have to go back and spend time on it halfway through the year but you're saving so much instructional time in the long run that uh, it's very much worth doing 
reactive discipline, uh, that was proactive. This is how we deal with what comes up during the course of a class period. I am a big believer in this is where you really set up your class environment. One thing to keep in mind, there's nothing small that goes on in the class. If there's something going on and you don't want it to be happening, feel free and be sure to call attention to it. That does not mean destroy a kid. It just means mention it, try to correct, the, try to make a course correction and then move on. And then try to create a strong sense of buy-in by helping the kids to understand why those expectations are in place. You know, um, we don't want to come off as control freaks, even though most of us are. Uh, we want them to, to feel like, uh, you know, it, everything that's put into place is for their benefit. It's very important to be consistent. Uh, when a student is talking or doing something else, please uh, understand 99.9% .9 of the time it's not personal. They're not directing that at you. Uh, so you address the behavior. I don't like the fact that you're talking right now. Not I don't like you because you're talking right now. Uh, of course, you want to keep people in the loop, like parents and administrators and, and your, your fellow uh, colleagues. And this is one that I've kind of learned along the way. I used to completely shut down all student talking in my class. No one could talk ever. If they talked, it was the 11th commandment. Um, and uh, really, now, there are times where it's okay. You know, if a kid just got something for the very first time and, and he's excited about it or she's excited about it and somebody says something and pumps them up, or if a kid makes a connection with something that you've been trying to teach, and, you know, if they're excited about what's going on or if they're reinforcing things or if they're adding to a positive atmosphere in the class and not taking away from the learning, it's kind of like when you kick off a fundraiser. You know, the days where we kick off fundraisers, I used to get so stressed because the kids got so riled up with whoever was talking to them. But you know what? They went out and sold stuff because they were excited about the fundraiser. So, if you know, you want to kind of walk that line when you're dealing with student talking between um, killing their joy or making sure that your class is operating. And then uh, Peter Boonshaft talks a lot about this in his books and in his clinics where, you know, you don't necessarily have to say something to a kid to get them to correct stuff. If you see somebody not sitting up, instead of nagging them, you just kind of stand up taller and look at them. Or if somebody, two kids are constantly chatting while you're trying to teach, sometimes you just go stand behind them and continue to teach the class. And uh, that keeps you from constantly nagging. And it does also mean that when you finally do have to say something, it's probably more effective because they haven't heard it for the last 500 days. Any uh, type of disciplinary consequence that is necessary when you get to that point where you just have to have a consequence for that kid who, who won't otherwise stop, if you're having to constantly go back to that same thing, it's not effective. Um, I had a, a person that I knew of, who I won't name, who used to, his big thing was sending kids to the wall. So if a kid was talking too much or they didn't have their pencil or whatever, um, he'd just say, put your instrument out and go stand against the wall. Well, what I noticed is it was the same kids <laughs> this every day who were standing against the wall, some of them very early in class because they preferred that to having to like, you know, be accountable. So that was obviously not a, not an effective consequence. And you know, what is effective depends on who the, a lot of times it depends on the kid, you know? So, and if that's something we want to talk about, we can maybe do that after we talk sex. Pacing again is a big deal. This is my one animation, I think. So there you go. Uh, this can be hard to grasp, especially for young teachers. Um, poor pacing leads to poor learning. Kids check out or they're overwhelmed, depending on which direction that pacing is going. 
we live in a very much in an age of instant gratification. Um, you know, I'm, I'm aggressively middle-aged and, uh, when I grew up, um, you didn't have instant access to every song on the planet and you couldn't reach anybody you wanted to by pulling a device out of your pocket and magically typing to them. And, you know, if you wanted to buy something, you had to like ride your bike to the mall. You couldn't just get your mom to order it on Amazon. So our kids live in a very different world. Uh, maybe the, even then a lot of you uh, who uh, grew up even after me, you know, we had dial up internet. Oh my gosh. Uh, and so, um, I know Gary Garner told us one time in a clinic that the average attention span of a human being is about six seconds and the average attention span of a goldfish is about eight. So, um, you know, you have to kind of keep things moving. Um, a lot of times with beginners, especially you have to recognize the difference between teaching for mastery and teaching for learning. And what I mean by that or improvement, you know, there are some things they're just not going to get in one day and it might take like weeks. And so you have to kind of manage what you expect, how much better you expect them to get within that part of the class period and not just, you know, like the old saying goes, beat a dead horse. Once they get to that point of diminishing returns, it's really smart to have some other activities in your back pocket so that you can have things to move on to, even if it means you're going to come back to whatever it was you were teaching before. And along with teaching for mastery or improvement, some things are events. Hey, let's learn how to sit up in the chair. Awesome. Some things are processes. Hey, let's learn how to do vibrato on the saxophone. They're just going to take time. And then lastly, and, I'll, and, and then I'll be ready to talk saxophone, how we keep them engaged and how we get information into their brains. It's really easy to get tunnel vision, I think, and be so locked in on what you're trying to teach that day that you forget to like look up at the kids. And that's a very important thing is to, to keep your head up and monitor uh, how attentive uh, they, they look or don't look. Uh, you know, there's a reason Charlie Brown's teacher is, is such a, so funny to all, so many of us, because we had that teacher who you need to vary your tone of voice. Um, with beginners, especially, especially at the beginning of the year, a lot of your work is going to be with individuals. So you have to find a way, ways to keep the groups involved. If I'm starting with the saxophone player on the far right of the class and there's 12 of them and the saxophone player on the far left side of the class sees that I'm taking five or 10 minutes per kid and that kid is smart enough to do the math and realize I'm probably not going to get to him if I continue on that pace. That kid could check out unless you're also like every now and then having the group play or asking questions or getting the kids to kind of help self help critique each other in a positive way. And then a big one that uh, I often see when I, I'm fortunate to watch very young teachers, they'll have classes that aren't talking, but noise in the room. They're clicking keys, pencils on the stands. And I was very fortunate to work with Randy Story at Midland Lee uh, for several years. And he said this like a lot, listen to the lights. And I always, the kids would stop and kind of cock their ear up and listen. And of course you couldn't hear the lights unless they were like, you know, fluorescent lights about to burn out or something. But the, 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 the room would get silent. And uh, I'll often use that and then say, okay, that's kind of our reset. Now let's keep going. Um, the students in a beginner class especially do have to feel comfortable taking risks. And what I mean by that, of course, is they're all doing something new for the first time. They don't want to look bad in front of their peers. Uh, so you have to encourage them and, and help them understand that this whole thing is, is, is a process. And when they are making those initial attempts, you praise them for playing by themselves. You make them feel great about volunteering if that's what happened. 
you talk about how great they did, even if it wasn't, and then you start giving them that um, critique that is going to help them get better. Um, very obviously, we're going to try to start our corrective statements, but 99% of the time or more with something positive. And if you really want to know if a student is engaged and getting what you're saying, ask them or ask one of the other, or better yet, ask one of the other kids in the class who maybe you're not talking to individually, if they can repeat back what you just said to you. Uh, and then I've really found the value over the last few years. A lot of teachers in the, the educational lingo is turn and talk. Uh, having the kids um, for just two or three minutes turn to each other and explain to each other what we just talked about or even have one play for 30 seconds and the other one talk to them about it. And of course, while they're doing that, the teacher's walking around the room, making sure that the information is good <laughs> and that we're not doing anything to hinder each other. Uh, but a lot of times the light bulb will click on because uh, the, the kid found a way to explain it better to the fellow kid than the teacher did. And then this is just something interesting I read on the internet re um, last year, and I keep this on uh, the cabinet next to my uh, desk, taped up on the cabinet. Um, I adapted this from a website, I went, I, an article I read on the internet called The Three A's of Active Listening. And um, it kind of helps me keep in mind what I need to be doing if I'll just kind of read over this every now and then. You know, active listening requires that the person be paying attention, and that requires effort. And I found it interesting that most people process words three times faster than, than we can talk, which is why people check out. They're, they're already thinking about other things by the time we get to the end of the sentence, much like some of you may be right now. Um, for attitude, uh, attitude is physically evident. In other words, we want to see that you're paying attention. We want to see that you're listening. And the, the uh, mental attitude of the listener must be that they're willing to, to receive whatever information we're giving them. And then adjustment, poor listeners are more focused on their reaction. We've all know people, and maybe we've been guilty of this ourselves, when we're having a conversation with someone and we're thinking about what we're going to say next instead of listening to what the person who's talking to us is saying. And then good listeners, instead of uh, thinking about what they're going to say, concentrate on what is being said, and then they react. And we talk about these... Uh, once I found this, I, I used it quite a bit in my beginning flute and clarinet classes, which are the two classes I currently teach. And um, it got to the point where they could like rattle this stuff off and, and it would kind of, again, give them a mental reset. Stay away from laundry list when you're helping kids. That's where you try to show them everything you heard or everything you know. You know, well, you didn't tongue and you missed the B flat and I think you're biting because you squeaked five times and you're right hands on top instead of your left. But other than that, it was really good. Um, it's much better to focus on the first priority thing, help them with that, then move on to the next thing. And then, you know, go down the list. Try to use we and us when addressing the class as much as you can and try to stay away from you and me. And then once you do get going, play way more than you talk. Now, at first that may not be possible, but uh, two reasons. One, you're trying to develop consistency, and the only way to do that is through repetition. And two is uh, we like to believe they're all going to go home and practice every single night, and probably maybe in a perfect world where there's rainbows and unicorns, they do. But the, the reality is the more time on their face in class, the more you can help make up for those of them that are maybe not practicing as much as we want. And then at the end of class, what they've done that day and showing them what they've learned. And then one of anticipation by talking to them about what you're going to do the next day. Uh, during this time before we're playing instruments, it's really important that they leave class every day feeling like they've learned something new. 
and it can be the tiniest thing in the world. But, you know, by the, by the fourth or fifth day of class, you want to be able to rattle off to them five or six things, no matter how small or insignificant they might be to you. Hey, you learned how to sit in a chair. You've learned how to tap your foot. You learned how to breathe to play an instrument instead of just breathe to like walk around. Um, you, you've learned how to identify five notes on the staff and you can count quarter notes. You know, you guys have learned a lot this week. Uh, during this time, um, it's really important also that they feel successful, especially when you start playing the instrument. Uh, we'll all have those kids who struggle at first. Find things that they can be successful on and make sure you also are doing those in class. And when they do those well, praise them to the high heavens. And then I'll lastly, here in this section, on most of these pre-playing days, we want to try to do something with the instrument, even if we're not playing yet. Uh, every day. Again, we're trying to keep that that excitement and that anticipation of, of playing the instrument alive. So, you know, we'll pull out the body of the saxophone and um, we'll learn where the fingers go. Or we'll play finger games where we go down and up the stack, keeping our fingers really close. Or we'll wibble fingers uh, back and forth. Or we'll learn how to finger two or three notes. Or we'll learn how to swab the instrument out so that they can do it one time in their lives before you let them do it on their own and they never do it again. Um, Different things where you're building that anticipation for playing the instrument so that they think there's a possibility that when they come in that next day, it could be time. All right. So that's kind of the pregame. Now we get into kind of the actual teaching of the saxophone. So thanks for hanging with me on all that. My white whale, the thing that I am still chasing, and this is mainly as a beginning clarinet teacher and not so much as a saxophone teacher the last few years, is getting them effect to finding an effective way to get them to put their reeds and their mouthpieces and their ligatures together without it taking five times longer than I think it should. Um, and I don't really have anything on here about how to put the reed and the ligature together because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that has them hold the ligature up with their thumb and move the reed into place and make sure that they keep it centered and have barely maybe a little bit of black showing at the tip. And, you know, here's where the ligature goes. And, of course, I have 30 beginning clarinets, and it takes me probably two or three days. And even with saxophone, you know, they will find ways to do this wrong, even after you have taught it to them right, and they have done it right. So it's important to spend as much time on this as you, as you, as you need to. Uh, when they're putting it together, we always, when we first teach it, we use the reed that comes in the case with the new instruments. We call it their, their um, testing reed, the one that's like a one and a half to where even like your dog could like make a sound on it if they could form even kind of an embouchure because we kind of want them to break that reed. And so uh, that's why we'll use that one first. And, and then when they trash that one, then we'll talk to them about how important it was because otherwise kids will go through an entire box of reeds on that first day of trying to put it together. So we start on small instrument, which that's what we call the mouthpiece, the neck piece, the ligature, uh, reed combination. When they put the mouthpiece on the, for the first time, you're going to want to have them grease the cork. And then you're going to want to have them do that if it's a new instrument or a new cork every day in class for a couple days uh, because they're not taking their instruments home yet because they're not ready to like do things at home yet consistently with good habits. And then every few days after that or as it dries out. When you put the mouthpiece on the cork, uh, you want about a half inch of cork showing. I don't know if you can see that or not. But um, mine is a little closer because my instrument's set up to play uh, a little bit more flat so I can get the instrument on, get the mouthpiece on further. Um, and it's good if you can have a saxophone player actually set the mouthpiece in place 
either, I don't know if you'd want to do this in the age of COVID, have them play on it and then sterilize the mouthpiece after they like tune it and mark the cork. Or if you want to have them play on their own mouthpiece, if it's a similar model. And the reason for that is um, most young kids, of course, are going to play with a lot of tension and they're going to want to bite. And so in order, so to get them to play in tune, we pull the mouthpiece out. And so now we're covering or the, on the cork and we're kind of covering up that habit. Whereas it's better to go ahead and kind of at least get it close to where like it should be played and then help them adjust with their embouchure to get it to where we want it to be. Uh, be careful that they don't over tighten their ligature screws because that will dampen down the vibration of the reed. The only exception to that might be the Rovner ligature, which is that leather ligature. Um, that one needs to be pretty tight because otherwise the reed's going to move around quite a bit. You really want to micromanage all of this as much as possible. And then when they do play, start playing, they need to hold the, the neck piece with two fingers and the thumb right behind the cork. We don't want them holding it here their neck because they could artificially make the instrument longer and the closer they get up to their face uh the more tension there seems to be uh, so two fingers in the thumb right here uh right behind the neck piece right behind the mouthpiece all right so now i'm a big believer in steps sorry i have a gnat that keeps flying in front of me and landing on my screen uh, and so this next part is about how we start to set them up to, to make sounds and we call it just we call it the six step setup every kid gets a copy of this in their binder that they take home and uh, hopefully they're practicing this in front of their mirrors outside of class when we get to the point where they're consistent and we're allowing them to take the instruments home. Um, I will place the mouthpiece of every student. So once they put this together, before we go through and actually have them put it in their mouth, I'm going to hold it for them and I'm going to show them, I'm going to have them form, talk to them about how to form their bottom lip and I'll go through that in just a second. I'm going to have that show them about how much I want them to open their mouth and I'm going to place the mouthpiece on their teeth and kind of show them how that should feel anchored there. Um, and then I'm going to have them repeat it. Like I'll say, okay, now you grab the saxophone neck piece, bring it away and put it back. And I'm looking to see like, does the face look the same? Uh, is the angle the same as what I held it at? I'll kind of wiggle on their, grab their neck and wiggle right here. Like you would a clarinet mouthpiece and see if it's, it feels like it's anchored. I'll look at their bottom lip and make sure they're not stretching it really thin and eventually, of course, we turn all that responsibility over to the student and they're doing it themselves. So step one, make a natural face as if watching boring TV. So we want the lips to be together and we want the face to just be completely without expression. Okay, I also call that your I'm over it face. What I would like you to not call it is make a face as if watching Mr. Shaw present a virtual clinic on saxophone pedagogy. So, um, so everything's very natural. We talk about the lips are laying together, not forced together, because we don't want any tension in their face even before they open their mouth. Step two, say ah, ah, and we'll talk about how much we really, you know, we don't want them to like completely like open their mouth as if they're going to swallow like a basketball, but we also need them to open their mouth wide enough that when they begin to place the mouthpiece, they're not pushing their bottom lip into their mouth. Um, so we don't want any contact with the bottom lip in the next step. Um, and we will again talk a lot about how the bottom, when you say ah, the bottom lip should fold over the teeth slightly. And obviously we don't just go say ah, now put it in your mouth. We do talk about that stuff, but we try to keep the steps themselves, what the kids are going to have in their folder, very simple. Step three, we're going to insert the mouthpiece. So you're going to hold it with two fingers in the thumb. 
ring it in. And um, of course, I've already modeled and shown them and held it and shown them how much to take. But it's a good thing to talk about how much mouthpiece. And this is something my uh, wonderful saxophone teacher, Don Lefevre, and I talked about just a couple of years ago. Uh, if you look at a diving board, the common uh, thing that I hear about where, how much mouthpiece should be in the mouth is right where the reed and the mouthpiece intersect. So if you look on the side, I'm sorry, I have a, I'm evil. I have a Legere reed on. Uh, where the reed touches the mouthpiece, that's about where we want the bottom teeth. And I very much teach that way on clarinet and had for saxophone on years. But what Don Lefevre and I talked about, and this is something he, he has done in his own teaching and, and with his son, who is also a fantastic saxophone player. Um, if you go onto the diving board and you go right at where the base of that diving board and the diving board uh, touch right at the end, you know, about what, about three feet in right before the diving board goes over the water. And if you were to jump up and down right there, the diving board would not vibrate at all. But if you move just like a step forward and you jump up and down, that diving board's actually going to vibrate quite a bit. And so I've come to teach on saxophone, not so much on clarinet, that actually it's not right where the reed and the mouthpiece intersect, but it's slightly in front of that or slightly back toward the tip of the reed. And I've had really good success with my, with my own playing with that and with our students. It really, it can, it's probably about a 5% difference in how much the sound opens up. But, you know, as a middle school band director, I'll take everything I can get, of course. So just food for thought. Step four, click and stick. So here what we're going to do, we're going to insert the mouthpiece. We're on step four. We're going to click it on the top teeth, and then we're going to keep it there. Um, this is something I talk to my students about uh, if I need to, and that's an important concept right there. We don't want to give them so much information about what they should be doing that they're just paralyzed and, and overwhelmed. Some of the things I'm telling you, I'm not necessarily going to tell them unless I need to. Okay, so, and this is one of those. Uh, we don't want, I don't want my students to like jam the mouthpiece up into their top teeth. And this is this, this goes the same for my clarinet players, uh, but especially on saxophone. More, more or less what I want them to do is I want them to stick it to their teeth. And then I kind of want to let them to let the saxophone or the neck strap take over and hold the weight of their head on the top of the mouthpiece. So I don't want them to pull the neck strap up so far that it's like pushing their head up any more than I want a clarinet player to jam that mouthpiece up against their teeth and get carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, instead, the concept of maybe thinking of having them hold the instrument in place or letting the neck strap hold the instrument in place and then just letting the weight of their head, just relaxing their neck and letting the weight of their head uh, rest on the mouthpiece. Step five, like a meditation guru, they're going to say, "Om," and what that does is it focuses the corners forward to the mouthpiece, and as long as they maintain their cushion, everything is set up. Uh, the chin at this point should be very relaxed, very natural, not flat. If it's a choice between flat and bunched up, flat is better, uh, and the lip should be very, very pliable. In fact, it's okay to see wrinkles in the lip or folds. Uh, of course, you don't want it to pooch out, but you want it to be a pretty generous cushion, a, so a very soft uh, cushion against the, against the reed. Last step, breathe in and then blow a fast but gentle airstream through the mouthpiece. Now, notice I say nothing there about producing a sound. And all the stuff that we just went through, we've actually practiced 
with the breath on the hand. And this is another thing I may have to rethink. Before we even make a blow air through the saxophone, I have the kids show me on my hand, like I'll hold it in front of their face, and they'll blow air on my hand, and I can tell them that's really, really aggressive, you know, or that's not enough. Now, as we move back into school, I'm not sure I want kids blowing on my hand, and I'm not sure how much I'm going to trust that bottle of hand sanitizer that I go to 20 times during class. But um, it is a good way to kind of get a measure. Now, what we do next is we blow just air. And the reason we do that, uh, when you're in a group of saxophone players or clarinet players or any players, uh, if the very first thing you try to do as a group is make a sound, chances are all the good work you've done is going to go out the window because the first thing they're going to do is they're going to try too hard. And the second thing is they're all going to try to hear themselves. So all of a sudden you're going to have this, you know, cacophony, which is a good word to use on your state exam testing. Um, of sound that is just not what you want. When they play on the neck piece, it should sound very similar to the saxophone. So when I have them blow air, uh, they tend to not tense up as much. And we're watching to make sure they're, they're, they're consistent with their embouchure and everything's staying still. They're not raising their shoulders. And we just get used to blowing air. Now, notice step six has two parts. Breathe in and blow. It's not step six, breathe. Step seven, blow because we never want them to hold that air in their body. And honestly, with a lot of my beginner classes, what I'll do at first, and this may be very taboo, I'll have them breathe through their nose. Once we set the embouchure, I don't want them to destroy all our good work by opening their mouth and then not putting it back. Now, we don't do that for very long. Um, but the first few times we play, we'll breathe through the nose. And we don't want them to fall in the habit of doing that ever. But um, what it does is it keeps the embouchure intact. And of course, eventually they have to learn how to breathe through their mouth and reset. That's a lot to think about. And there's a lot of uh, potential for destruction of the embouchure. If the very last thing you do before you had them set up what is hopefully a beautiful face is uh, open their mouth to breathe. Okay, going. So after we do air, air to sound for a while, um, then we'll gradually move from air to sound. So, and I don't know how the audio will come over off of this. I promise in my room, this is beautiful. Um, I'll go air and I'll tell them either think of getting the air gradually faster or think of blowing the air further away. I never say more air and I would never say blow harder. Okay. Those imply tension. And I will demonstrate to them first, this is how far you want to go. When you get to this point with your sound, this is where you stop and maintain. You don't just keep blowing air. So they'll go I don't know if you could hear that or not, but I'm going through my instrument for about three or four seconds, both times, and then gradually increase the, uh, increase the airspeed until I, get, I produce a sound. And of course, you're going to have kids at first that go too far, and you're going to have kids that are so slow in ramping up the air that you feel like you can go like to Starbucks and come back and the sound is still not coming out. But um, in my experience on saxophone and clarinet, it saves a lot of headaches. In fact, uh, when I kind of stumbled on this in my clarinet class a couple years ago, it's actually something that a lot of brass players do already, air to airy, sound to sound. Um, I did not get the blasty clarinet. It did not sound like chickens on acid. And um, a huge percentage of the class, I'm talking maybe 95%, played F sharp 
the first time instead of blasting so hard that their embouchures collapsed and they played, you know, like a, like a D flat or something. So things to watch for on the embouchure, uh, see this a lot where the lip is just way too tight against the teeth and they're using kind of a hard cushion. Uh, their teeth are not anchored on top of the mouthpiece. They're puffing their cheeks, which could be their, their muscles just need to get stronger on the sides of their face, or it could be they're biting the reed closed, no air is going through, and the air has got to go somewhere. The angle of the instrument, making sure that uh, the angle of the neck piece and the mouthpiece setup is very much the same as what it's going to be when they play the saxophone. So kind of slightly up, not necessarily straight in like this. Okay, so if you'll usually if you'll just kind of think of the, the bottom of the neck piece pointing generally either straight down or a little bit in, that'll get you started. And then you can make adjustments from there uh, based on the child's face and the structure of their jaw. And then the, the amount of mouthpiece in the mouth, which we already talked about. So there's the six step setup all in one place. And moving on, before we go to the full instrument, along with all the other things we're teaching with rhythm and, and making sounds and stuff, we're also going to, after we get very consistent on uh, starting, and eventually, of course, we do move to starting the sound instantly on demand and breathing through the mouth, uh, then we're going to start teaching articulation. And we will start teaching articulation way before we're ready to apply it to the instrument. So in other words, we're going to use uh, air on the hand and stuff like that uh, to teach articulation. Uh, so like I said, we teach this alongside tone production uh, using a da or a do syllable. Uh, ta, two also work. To me, they're a little bit too percussive. Um, so I like da or do, and I like the tongue to touch, uh, the tip of the top of the tip of the tongue to touch right there. I don't know if you can see my reed or not because it's legere, but right here, not up here between the blade of the reed and the, the tip of the mouthpiece. Uh, the tongue moves up and down, just like when we talk, not back and forth. And we don't really talk about legato or staccato or anything or accented. We just want a very neutral, generic articulation. And it's a lot of me, I play, you play. Uh, at first, like I said, we'll do air on the hand. The airstream is continuous. Of course, this is the same for every instrument. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The tongue dents the airstream. It does not stop the airstream. Uh, we'll have them blow to a fixed target on the hand. And at first, just like with uh, tone, everything is started with air. So we're not starting the sound with a da or a do syllable at first. We're starting the sound with just air. And then we're having them articulate or tongue in a not in necessarily even a rhythm. So kids will sit there and go and it's okay for there to be some trial and error there. You know, the, the disadvantage we have uh, over our under or over our percussion friends and our orchestra friends is we can't see what's going on. We can just tell them what they should be doing. Uh, and so there's gonna be some trial and error at first and it's okay to sit there and, and let them experience that eventually we will transition to them starting the note and i hate this term with the tongue and because we really want the kids to understand the tongue does not start the note you can touch the reed with your tongue till the cows come home and no sound is going to come out okay if the air isn't there so we want the uh the air we always want them to think of the, of the air starting the note and even in our bands at willowwood we do 
part of our uh, fundamental block every day. Uh, we have our, our first block of notes, maybe not every day, but our long tones. A lot of those are air starts at first so that the air is right there at the instant that there is that it's supposed to be. And then we'll talk to them about how the tongue helps define the start. So basically it's breathe, tongue in place, air blows the tongue down and out of the way. So the tongue is not drawing back and then like slamming into the reed to start the note. Eventually we'll add rhythm like quarter notes and a foot tap to that and we'll have them articulate. And again, this is, this is practiced on the hand and on the instrument. Uh, so they can focus on the airstream and the tongue. And then you need to really be prepared in my experience to almost feel like you're going to start over when you move from air on the hand to the small instrument and then again to the instrument. So just be prepared for that. That's my experience with our kids. All right, so now we can articulate, we can make sounds. Uh, hopefully we're making characteristic tones. Everything's going beautifully. And now we're ready to move on to the full saxophone in our class. And for me uh, and my staff, this is usually maybe even as long as six to eight weeks into the fall semester. We're not in a hurry because we want to set them up for success. There's not a set time on our calendar where we're going to move to the saxophone or to the clarinet or the flute. Um, you know, we're going to try to get give every kid who signed up for our class uh, the most chance we can for them to be successful. Um, now that doesn't necessarily mean you wait for the, the last kid because sometimes going to the full instrument will motivate them to, uh, you know, hook things up. Case is open from the floor for obvious reasons. Nothing ever fell off the floor. Uh, first thing they need, they'll do is they're taught to do is soak their reed. And the only reason I really put it on there was to mention the entire reed needs to be soaked, whether that's in their mouth or in a cup of water. You know, they, they, most of us uh, tend to put the, the tip of the reed in the mouth and we hold it there for a second and then we put it together. They need to turn it around and get the back end of the reed uh, wet. Sometimes that part of the instrument, the reed is called the butt. So your kids can be butt lickers. Um, we'll put the full mouthpiece and neck set up together first, then hook the body of the saxophone up, still holding the saxophone with one hand hand maybe up here by the neck not just letting it rest on this little you know whatever 75 cent piece of plastic that it's hooked to they'll go ahead and put the saxophone together and of course when they do that they really need to watch out for the octave key and then when they tighten the neck screw they don't need to bear down on that thing until it won't turn ever again in the history of our universe or the future history of our universe they need to tighten it to the point where the neck won't move this gets loose a lot because kids will over tighten it. Fortunately, it's a pretty easy fix by the music store, not by mom and dad. And then as they move it, they're going to adjust their neck strap so that when they bring the horn up, the mouthpiece is going to come right to the bottom edge of their bottom lip. So that they have to open up their jaw to put it in their mouth. We don't want it to come straight in, although that's not terrible, but we definitely don't want it to be so high that they have to reach and we don't want it to be so low that they have to either uh, scooch down or it defeats the purpose of even having a neck strap to begin with and they pick it up and pull it to their face before they place their fingers we talk about how the hand needs to be in a natural shape just like when you hold it down here or like when you're holding starbucks that's a way for me to work in that they need to bring me gift cards um, and then the hand is in a natural shape on both sides the left thumb is it approximately two o'clock or is that, yeah, that's two o'clock or is that 10 o'clock? 
two o'clock on the saxophone overlapping the octave uh, key mechanism just a little bit. Now where the right thumb goes, well, that depends on how big the student's hands are. You know, little kids are not gonna be able to get the thumb all the way over here like a clarinet player uh, with the thumbnail under the hook. They may have to actually move out and be a little, you know, fortunately we have straps. So the thumb isn't really supporting the weight of the saxophone anyway, like it maybe is on clarinet. So um, other kids may be a little further over if they have larger hands, but there's no really hard and fast rule here. Yeah, they need to be under the thumb hook, but where they are under that thumb hook is totally dependent upon the size of their hands. Just like a flute player, where the thumb goes on the flute, I mean, generally it's supposed to go in a certain area, but if a kid has really long fingers, they may be further back. If they have really short fingers, it may be further up. The pinkies on the home keys, and of course by that I mean the right hand needs to be on the low C key. The left pinky is, is ideally, I like to put it on the B key actually really low so that I can pivot back and forth like this rather than have to roll or pick up and put down. Depending on the size of their fingers, um, the B key might be the home key for a while until they grow. The roller might be where they rest their pinky. You do want their pinkies to be in contact with the saxophone or just barely above the saxophone, not sticking out like they're drinking tea in England. All right, now, when we're placing it, you know, the big, the big debate sometimes is should the kid play off to the side or should they play in the middle? My opinion is it doesn't really matter. I don't think it affects the sound one way or another as long as the kid is physically tall enough to uh, be able to play in the middle. Now, only alto saxophone is played in the middle. Tenor saxophone should not be played in the middle. Barry saxophone should not be played in the middle unless you're trying to give the kid back problems. Um, but it's probably for, for the sake of consistency in a beginner class and considering, you know, those are usually going to be your younger kids. Usually, uh, they'll typically all start off on the side. Now, if they're starting on the side, it is okay to adjust the mouthpiece so that their head is straight. Okay. You'll see a lot of kids bring their, they'll play off to the side and they'll bring their neck piece up. And it just hurts you physically to look at their neck. It's okay for this to not be completely lined up with the mouthpiece or with the neck, with the octave key. You want the neck, the mouthpiece to be turned in a fashion where the student's head is going to be level when they play and not causing extra tension in the neck. So the short answer to that is it really doesn't matter as long as when, if they're playing in the middle, they shouldn't be resting their arm on their leg and they shouldn't have to like break their wrist in funny, in funny uh, positions to um, reach the uh, saxophone. So that's pretty much everything I just said. And it's fine for them to transition later to playing in the middle. There's no real advantage or disadvantage to either one, except for the fact that playing in the middle is gonna be more like what they would do if they were standing up. All right, so we're now in the time of year where we're playing the saxophone, but we haven't started the method book yet. And so what we're doing basically is a lot of Suzuki style teaching. I play, you play. Uh, rote style things where I'm just calling things out or maybe writing them on the board. I'll usually have a sheet that I give them that's kind of a Kickstarter sheet, and I've got one of those that I can share with you at the end of the clinic. Uh, it's very simple, just a bunch of long tone whole notes over the first five or six notes on the instrument. Uh, lots of long tones to develop uh, consistency of air, to work on breathing correctly, and to work on just strengthening and getting them used to using these muscles. And by strong, I don't mean squeeze, I just mean you're using muscles kind of like when you swim, 
and you haven't swam in a long time, you're using muscles in ways you've never used them before, and they're going to get fatigued uh, until they get used to using them that way. Whatever note the book starts on is awesome, but you don't have to start your kids on that note. If, if the book starts on D, concert F, in the, right there in the staff, and that's not a great note, then you know, start them on B and work them work them up to that that note or whatever it is before you start the book. Those books are written and they're great books out there to be used in heterogeneous classes and homogeneous classes, right? And so, what the book is saying may or may not be what's best for the saxophone player. I tend to start my kids on B because it's a good middle note. Uh, it's it's got a decent amount of resistance, but it's not terrible. Uh, it's something they can be successful on. We're not dealing with octave keys and, you know, things like that. So, um, and then we'll work our way up and down and you'll see that on the, the little sheet I'll have to share with you. Hey J uh, Jim, real quick, everybody yeah. out there, I'm getting a couple questions about, will you get a copy of the slideshow? Will you get uh, materials and handouts? Answer absolutely. Yeah. Answer your questions. Absolutely. We're going to hook you up. It is Teacher Appreciation Week, so we've found the funding to get you these awesome gifts. So, all right, keep going, Joe. All right. So, uh, when are they ready to start the book? Uh, well, they got to know the note, the, whatever notes it starts on. Um, hopefully, they're at this point producing a very um, acceptable, if not incredible, sound. They're consistent in how they're articulating. We've got some good rhythmic foundation um, in place. Um, and generally with, with my classes, used to be by the end of the first six weeks when I was teaching beginners in seventh grade, uh, sixth grade, you know, like I said, sometimes we might go six weeks before we get to the full instrument. We might go another two or three before we get to the book. And what, what I found is if we can do a really good job of setting them up, the first part of the book is very similar to what we've done on those pre-teaching things. It's just now on written out for them and published and they actually when they do get to the book they can move really fast especially for the first few lessons in fact we might cover we use tradition of excellence starts out with whole notes and we've already learned every note on those two or three pages that we use and it's really cool for them when they start the book and they can fly through that first five or six lines in one class period because they've already done them they just didn't know they were doing them so now our class is starting to get a little bit more of a structure. Uh, we'll usually start with a quick counting line. Uh, our book has some supplementary uh, things in the back that are like two or three measures long. Um, and that's something that every kid can be successful on, even if they're still struggling a little bit with tone production. Uh, as the class really gets going, we're starting to build in some fundamentals. And I have a sheet with some saxophone fundamentals that we use that I'll share with you also. We're trying to cover whatever new concept or playing technique uh, that's going to be introduced that day. We'll cover it right after we warm up uh, when they seem to be the most receptive to new stuff. Or if there's nothing really new that day, we'll work on technique. Then we'll work on our book. A really easy etude or something that we're working on. And then many times at the end of class, uh, we will. Um, work on, um, you know, we'll sight read something really quick or, or we'll uh, perform for each other for a few minutes, just really short little excerpts that the kids volunteer to do out of their book or out of their private lessons. Great way to get kids to take private lessons, have them show off in class what they're doing in their lessons. Uh, through all of this, 
there's a big emphasis on teaching the kids how to practice um, and teaching them how to be their own teacher when they go home. Now, are they going to be their own teacher as effectively as us? Probably and hopefully not, because maybe then they need to be the ones teaching the class. But they need to understand that when they're home, it's not practicing is not sitting down and making noise until the 25 minutes we've recommended that you practice is up. Practicing is, is working to get better. And these are the kind of things you should do. And this is how there's many times where we'll uh, encounter a line in the book where I'll stop and say, now, if this were me, this is how I would practice it. If I was having trouble on this, this is how I would practice it. Or, you know, I would make sure I could play it three times in a row and I would have quarters on this side of my stand. And every time I get it, I get to move one over. And every time I miss it, I have to move, move it back until I can get all three or all five or whatever I want across the page. And this right here, I would play uh, one measure plus one note. And then I would start on that note and play this. And then I would put that together and just teaching them how to practice. And, you know, anything you want them to do, you need to model. If you want them to use a metronome at home, then at least most of the, maybe half the time or more in class, you need to be using a metronome. We could get into a whole discussion about metronome and not metronome. I try to be pretty much 50-50 because I also want them to start developing their own sense of time. Um, we do have a fundamental routine that we kind of fall into starting probably about halfway through the first semester. We will start on the small instrument, the neck piece, every day for most of the, probably the entire fall and the first month or two of the spring. And then we'll go to move to maybe starting on neck piece, maybe just Monday and Wednesday or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so that uh, we're starting to get more into the full instrument. The, uh, we have various exercises. We try not to fall into a routine where we're playing the exact same thing every day because that can get monotonous. So if we have exercises that duplicate themselves and what we're trying to do, you know, like a Remington type exercise, and a um, F descending type exercise where you go down the concert F scale two notes at a time. Those are pretty similar. They're not exact, but if you've got a 45 minute class, you're safe in picking one or the other. You don't necessarily have to. But um, when we're getting into flow studies, uh, we may abandon the Remingtons for a, for a day or two and, and, and start teaching airflow studies. Uh, this is really important, not just in your beginner class, but in your band. Anything you do, for the, if you really want your kids to practice fundamentals, and we encourage ours to go through that same routine on their own when they practice in an abbreviated form, you're going to have to tie those fundamentals to what you're doing in class as much as you can. If you get to a line in your book that moves from F to A, or sorry, D to A, concert F to concert C, and there's a place in your uh, interval exercises that does the same thing, and you have all these particular goals that you want them to accomplish when they do it, well, that's a great place to point out. See, this is the exact same as exercise two on our fundamental sheet. You're doing the exact same thing right here, and that's why you all sound so awesome when you do it. The more you can connect your fundamentals to what they're playing in class, and even in your band do that, the more they will buy into the, to the need for them. Let me check my time. I feel like I've been talking for two hours. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll go faster. <laughs> so this is kind of our basic fundamental routine uh, that we get into and different types of exercises that we pick from. And I think I mentioned almost all of these already. As far as building in technique, you have to have an insistence on good hand position from the very beginning. And then by what I mean by quick finger action, whether you're going from a whole note to a whole note or a 16th note to a 16th note, 
They need to move their fingers quickly and with a purpose from one note to the next. When we're teaching scales, we'll move from tetrachords early in the year, four note patterns, half, half step, half, whole step, whole step, half step, to one octave major scales, usually around Christmas or right after, to eventually introducing full range scales. Now, how many scales? We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Chromatic scale, I like to introduce that six or seven notes at a time, up and down, maybe even three or four notes at a time, and then gradually build on that throughout the year. And I won't necessarily start on low B flat because that's a challenging note. I might start on G, work up to like D with the octave key right there in the staff. And then I might go from D to the next G the next week, put those together. And then I might go back and catch low D because they already know the fingerings now and they learned it in the easy register and chain that on. And um, by the end of the year, when they do their auditions, they have three different levels of the chromatic they can play. In other words, if they want 70 out of 100 points, they play like from low D to, to um, high D. If they want 85 points, let's say, they play from low C to high D. And if they want 100 points, they play the entire scale. Uh, use of alternate fingerings is very important. There are basically three important alternate fingerings on saxophone. Fork F sharp, as opposed to middle F sharp, middle finger F sharp, using chromatic passages. Um, side, B, uh, side B flat and bis B flat and one and one, which I'm going to talk about on the next slide. And side C. Okay, those chromatic fingerings exist for a reason. They need to be encouraged to use them. They're, they're there to keep us from having to flip back and forth because that can get fumbly. They're there to make everything smoother and easier to play. Insist on alternate fingerings where appropriate. And we're using material to build technique from the method book and supplements. B flat. The bis B flat key is not the same as the flute thumb B flat. Yes, it's helpful. And yes, if you have an extended passage uh, where it's in the key, the key is, includes B flat, it will help. But even then, there are places in that music where they may need to use side B flat. They should never have to flip, ideally, between B flat and C. So there, we would use side B flat. We would, in really fast passages, they can use bis B flat with the middle uh, side key for C. It's gonna be flat, like pitch-wise. So you're not going to want to use that in anything where they're going to have to hold the note out. But uh, make them use our kids. It is sometimes like an act of God to get them to use side B flat. And our teachers are insisting on it from the very beginning. Most kids tend to gravitate to the first fingering they learn. So we want to make sure they understand there are situations where we use the others. I very rarely use one and one B flat on saxophone. It's not a great note. Um, and it's also very easy to get those keys out of adjustment. The left pinky, we talked about already, about how they you, ideally they're going to place it either on the B key very close to the roller so that when they go from B flat to B, you've all heard the saxophone chromatic scale where they go B flat, the B, because they have to pick their finger up. But if they'll put it really down close to the roller and then rock down and play that, catch the B flat key with their uh, knuckle, now they're just pivoting, kind of like a clarinet player when they pivot up to the A key. Some kids may not have big enough fingers or long enough fingers to do that yet, large enough hands, but that's ideally uh, what we would like them to do. Palm key, hand position, the big thing here, we want them to drop the hands straight down to play the palm keys. We don't want to see this. Um, and then low notes. <laughs> I find when I play a low note, uh, when I play in the extreme low register, my teeth 
actually kind of pull away from my bottom lip. We want the bottom lip to feel even softer down low because we want more of the reed to vibrate. Um, low notes are best approached stepwise and over time. And I have some low note exercises, really easy ones on the, the handouts I'll share with you. You want a more open oral cavity down low and you want to feel like you're using really warm air. Hey, Jim. Yes. I know you're on a roll, um, but how do you get kids, how do you prevent kids from uh, jumping octaves, especially when they're that lower register? Well, some of that is the mechanical uh, issue of the saxophone. Some of it is um, what I just talked about. They've got to let the bottom lip be soft enough that the reed can vibrate in that frequency. And then some of it comes down to voicing. They just need to feel more open uh, inside. And we'll, I won't put you through it on, on the internet audio, but you know, in extreme cases, when it comes to voicing, you can have the kids um, pull their mouthpiece and the pitch on the mouthpiece by itself, if I remember right, and I think there's people on here who can correct me, should be an A, I think. I'd have to check it on a tuner. It's been a long time. It's been a while. But they can get to, the, if they're extremely sharp or extremely flat, then something's going on there, voicing-wise or embouchure-wise. You can actually play like three or four note songs on just the mouthpiece by changing the position of your tongue inside your mouth. Now, I'm not going to do that to you all because, you know, you might have children and they might call CPS. But um, um, a lot of times it's voicing and it's just they're trying to muscle it out. You know, the air is going to feel slower down low than it does in the middle and upper register. And a lot of times they're trying to use middle and upper register airspeed and they're cranking out an octave above what they're trying to play. Does that answer your question? Yep, absolutely. Okay. So uh, third space C sharp is potentially the ugliest of all the notes. The book fingering is rarely the best option when it comes to intonation or sound. And we'll teach right from the beginning. Yes, when you have, well, when we first teach it, we're going to teach open C sharp because that's what's in the book and it's easier for them to to not be overwhelmed. But other great options for that note that we try to get in place, octave key and third finger is, is usually gonna to be tonally better and easier for them to control. And this is the C sharp that's right there in the staff. They may have to add additional keys on the right hand, and sometimes they'll add them just to make it easier to go from C sharp to D or C sharp to E or F. Uh, my personal fingering for C sharp is open C sharp, and I add the middle side key to bring the pitch up. Um, some people will use low C sharp with the octave key. That's not a great fingering in most situations. It's, it can get a little honky and out of control, but if they can control it, it actually sounds more like the notes that are immediately above it. But that's not one that we use a whole lot. And I don't think we talk about that too much with our beginners. As far as the upper register goes, real quick, we use octave slurs from very early in the year. We talked about how the upper register can be the kill zone. We wanna make sure we're not just powering it out just because it's high. Uh, the, the palm key notes are going to feel the tongue is actually maybe going to feel a little higher in the back of the mouth, kind of like a clarinet and the airstream for me at least feels skinnier. Now I don't know how I make it skinnier. I doubt I make it skinnier. I mean, the throat has a bone in it. You can't, you know, change the shape of the air. Maybe it's more of a uh, direction with the tongue kind of thing. And then, uh, the use of front F, uh, if you play a high C and then you add this auxiliary, this funny looking key up there that we tell our kids never to Bush. It's on my on my instrument. It's shaped differently on on some beginner instruments. It's just another pearl. Well, if you play that correctly, you get an F. And so, because it's called the front F key. 
Okay, and at first they may be getting this. Or they could be getting a squeak. So then we have to talk to them about, well, let's try changing the position of the tongue. Maybe think of the back of your tongue being up further. Think of your airstream being skinnier. Think of the air going across the roof of your mouth and down into the saxophone. You just try all kinds of things. And eventually, if, if they can master getting that front F out, even if it, they have to play the C first, well, they've, they've unlocked some stuff in there. And now they're kind of starting to understand that voicing. Saxophone, we can't get too locked in with what we're doing in, in the middle register because it will affect the upper register. And like John asked about the low register. And this may be one of the very last things, I promise. I do try to get to vibrato the first year. Um, we talk about movement occurs from the jaw. It's not like a flute player where we're, you know, pulsing the air and eventually it kind of moves up into here. We're going from the jaw. We use yaw, 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 yaw. So I would tell them to go watch the movie Fargo, but I don't want them to be scarred. Um, we do try, I provide examples on the saxophone, but you don't have to be a saxophone player to provide vibrato examples. You can demonstrate on your own instrument or you can refer them to recordings. When I was learning how to do vibrato, uh, I listened to a lot of recordings of vocalists and string players because that was my teacher uh, told me, don't listen to saxophone players. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. He didn't want me to copy Marcel Mule, who was like super fast vibrato. Uh, we use measured vibrato exercises at first. We might even use our fundamental exercises where we're playing like eighth note, doing vibrato in eighth notes on like a long tone exercise or a scale. We also do what I call the ping pong ball exercise. I think I got that from Eric Wilson, who I was fortunate to study with uh, one year at WT. Uh, my good friend Cindy Bullock calls it the train. And that's where we stop. Uh, we start with a very slow. And in case the audio didn't work great, we start very slow and very wide. And we gradually get faster and narrower, like a train speeding up and then we slow down again. When you first have students use a vibrato, they don't want to do it. They don't like the way they sound. So anytime a student tries to use vibrato for you, no matter how horrified you are inside, no matter how much you want to curl up in a ball and rock back and forth in the corner, praise it to the high heavens. Uh, generally, uh, faster and more narrow in amplitude or width in the upper register, and slower and more amplitude in the low register. Things we're going to watch out for too fast, like Elmer Fudd, uh, too slow or too wide or creating vibrato by pulsing their air. Measured vibrato is way okay for the whole beginner year. Eventually we want to get to where it's more free, but if by the end of the beginner year they can at least do it in like eighth notes or even triplets, even if you don't tell them they're triplets, or even maybe 16th notes, groups of four per beat. And they're gonna they're gonna be rock stars. All right, this is it. These are the priorities for the first year. This is what we want them to be able to do the most. Now we really want them to be able to do more than that. But that one is like number one through ninety nine out of a hundred. Characteristic tone in all registers, or at least in a range where they're gonna sound great on their music in the seventh grade. Rhythmically proficient with a good sense of time. Fundamentally and technically sound. And then able, of course, to get, walk into a seventh grade band class or a sixth grade band class or whatever grade they're going to next and be able to play that, feel successful on some level. I did not talk too much about how many scales because to me it's more important uh, the beginner year that what scales we cover, they play well. We can catch up on scales later. Some years we get to all 12. I love to get to at least seven or eight. 
but you know, I have a 45 minute class with lots of kids taking private lessons where somebody else might have two classes a week. And I think in this age of Facebook and social media where we're all sharing with each other all the time, I think sometimes we feel like we're not getting to as much as everybody else where our situation might be completely different than someone else's. So I really think it's more important that they do it well than that we cover mass quantities. That's it. Awesome. Is it okay if we do like a 10 minute Q&A? We can do whatever you want. All right, people's like, can y'all show still me people here? Yeah. All right, <laughs> give me like a thumbs up or something. Show me like if you're good or like a thumbs down or like log off if you don't want us to continue. <laughs> there they go, they're all gone. Okay, I see Travis Barney and I see Deborah Vandergriff. I'm just on the first page, so if I leave you out, I'm sorry, Kathy right. Breeden. So, while Vincent. shouting out. Uh, drop questions in the chat. If we haven't answered your question, we're going to try to answer them now in the Q and a, uh, I want to thank you all right before we start this. I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, thank you, Bennett Parsons again, huge help in making this thing happen and run. Um, thank you to all you teachers. Uh, it is teacher appreciation week and this is a very strange time. Um, but don't forget like, we, I, I appreciate you, and I hope that you have people that are around you that are telling you how important you are, because uh, you know without music, who knows what this world would be like. So I, I do want to thank you guys for, for being here. Uh, know that I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you guys so that everything's all safe and healthy so one day we can return to teaching in our classrooms. So uh, we, we can talk saxophone, or we can talk band and if i'm not qualified there's a lot of people on here who are so, so if, you're saxophone to, if you're saxophone to death if that's more than you ever wanted to know about saxophone we can certainly talk about whatever here we go uh we got a couple questions going on um what are your go-to phrases for students who play with a bunched up chin uh a lot of the time it's a result of too much bottom lip in the mouth in fact, almost always, it's too much bottom lip in the mouth. So we start there. We also talk about, again, we talked about saying ohm. Well, naturally, when you do that, unless they push their bottom lip into their mouth, ohm, their chin's going to stay flat. Lots of work with the mirror and lots of work away from the saxophone and trying to make everything look and feel the same as much as we can when the saxophone goes in the mouth. But the big one is... Uh, Again, going back to ohm and that natural face. You know, we talked about boring TV or watching me do this presentation. You could always play this for them, and it'll probably help their chin. But um, just making sure the face is very natural and that if the bottom lips too far in, the chin's going to follow. Uh, do you think that it could be? Do you think it can be beneficial for fifth grade students to start on clarinet first before saxophone? I've never done that, and I, but I know of people who have and are very successful. You want to be really careful. They're, the embouchures are different, you know, um, and I think it's you're doing a disservice to a kid if you just throw them on saxophone because they can't master the clarinet embouchure, but um, the embouchures are different. I don't like the word hard cushion for clarinet. I don't like anything that implies tension, but it is a firmer cushion. They're making their chin flat as opposed to just letting it stay in the natural shape. There's, their tongue is up in the back, which is not going to destroy a saxophone sound, but it's it's going to hinder them in the low register and in the middle register. So um, I'm, I'm, I know it can work, but um, 
you got to really be careful. All right, we have a question here. Uh, could you could you briefly go over and explain voicing, what it is, and when to bring it up? Voicing is one of those things where it's hard to explain because it's all in here, right, in, in your mouth. I am not a good whistler, never have been, uh, but Donald Sinta, who wrote, literally wrote the book on voicing, I think you can order it online, uh, he would always use whistling with his students, I believe, I may be remembering the wrong teacher, um, someone I was exposed to in the past who I think was probably Donald Sinta would use uh, whistling because when you're whistling, the only way to change pitch is to change the way you voice it, the position of your tongue inside your mouth. Um, you know, when we talk to clients about voicing, they have to voice with their, uh, their tongue, like they're saying the letter or the word he, he, because they want the back of their tongue to be very high up in the mouth. So that would be a voice, a syllable that they're voicing inside their mouth. Whereas with saxophone, it's more of an O or an ah, because we want the tongue to be down. So voicing is basically a, a good way to explain it to kids is it's as if you were singing a certain syllable. You know, like if I'm singing E, my tongue is up. And if I'm singing oh, my mouth is more open inside. And as far as when I bring it up, not unless I have to, because that's something that, uh, you know, again, if they're overthinking things, if a kid's doing great without me having to say anything about voicing, there's no reason for me to put the idea in their head that they need to concentrate on voicing. If I have a kid who's having trouble getting out high notes because they're not voicing them correctly, then uh, we're going to talk about voicing. Do you recommend starting with side C since so much beginning uh, sax slash beginning band music requires them to go directly between D and C? I don't know if I would start with it because like I said, they tend to use the fingering that they learn first. And the regular standard fingering for C, they're going to encounter way more in their music than they are side C. However, it is something they need to know how to do very quickly. Uh, I get frustrated with the beginner flute books when they teach one and one B flat. And that's all it's all it is. Uh, they, they never introduce thumb B flat at all. It, like our book, it's not even it's on the fingering chart, but it's never covered in the book itself. Well, we start on thumb B flat because they're, that's what they're going to use the most. And in the music that they're going to encounter, probably through at least the eighth grade, if not further. So I can see why you would want to get side C introduced very, very quickly. I introduce it when we start talking about the chromatic scale. It's not bad necessarily to have them flipping back and forth between those two notes at first, because it's a really good way for you to hear if their fingers are close and if they're playing with good technique. Because if you hear that extra note in between, then you know that either their fingers are too far up or they're not moving them quickly enough. Uh, how do you transition from slow and gradual air starts into a unison class start that is in rhythm with a count off? Very slowly. <laughs> um, it takes, like I said, a lot of it is trial and error. And I've learned as I've gotten older and had kids and my kids myself to trust my students a little more than I used to. And I'll actually like, I'll say, okay, we want it to sound like this now. All right. So take 30 seconds and do that on your own. And this is after we've gotten into the year. I know they're not just going to like go all party time and, and, you know, sound like they're at a new year's Eve party. They're actually going to work on it. And then I'll say, okay, who's been successful? And we'll hear various volunteers and it might take, you know, we might spend five minutes on it that day. Maybe three or four more kids got it. We'll move on to something else or we'll move on to something else and come back to that. And then after we get where everyone can start instantly and sound great, then we'll add the count off. 
So I'm not trying to introduce more than one thing at a time. If I'm going from air to air start uh, with air first to an instant sound and I want it to be in rhythm, I'm not going to try to get them to go instant sound in rhythm right now. We're going to go instant sound and we're going to do it one at a time. Okay. And then once everyone can get it, then we'll move to the concept of now I'm going to count you off and we're going to start together. When do you introduce vibrato? Um, generally way later than I meant to, <laughs> but, uh, it's a really good thing to kind of introduce either just before or just after spring break necessary. Once they're really in a, in a typical year, that's about when I would usually introduce it. In fact, sometimes it was like the Wednesday before spring break. So we'd have something new to keep them focused on for the last two or three days when everything else is shutting down. Um, you know, if they're, if, if they're ready earlier, you know, we may start it in February, if if we need a little bit more time to work on the things we're working on, because it's a larger class or we're not getting it, we may put that off until April. But definitely with enough time left in the year, which would be four to six weeks, where you can reinforce it and, and help them develop it. Uh, if you're teaching D major, which C-sharp fingering do you use? Okay, are we doing D major like written D major or concert uh, D major? Alexander, Garza, this is your question. I, I don't think it matters either way. <laughs> when, they're playing, when they're playing technique, like a scale, they're either going to use the open fingering, or if they are able to put their right hand down and it sounds good or things like that, go for it. But I'm not expecting them to do that thumb and third fingering that I talked about when they're playing extended technique, when they're playing faster passages. Those fingerings I shared with you are more for places where maybe – they're holding something out and there may be an intonation problem or it's a tone quality issue. But you know, if it's something that's going by quickly like that, open C sharp. All right, looks we'll take two more questions here. Okay. Uh, what are your class sizes? For saxophone? Uh, typically my assistant Don Melton actually teaches that class combined with double reads. Uh, we have the campus I'm most familiar with is the one I teach on. We have two feeder campuses we have five concert bands at Willowwood, so there's no way I can get to both both campuses. So I teach at North Point, which is our original feeder campus before the new one came on. And uh, typically she'll have 12 to 15 saxophones and four, four to five oboes and four to five bassoons in her class. And that sounds like a lot of saxophones, but we're outfitting five concert bands. So we want to have enough saxophones started in there that uh, we can have tenor and barry saxes in as many of those bands as possible. Right, we're going to take one more question. Uh, so if you have it, drop it in the chat. Uh, and before we, we get on to that last question, I do want to thank Mr. Jim Shaw again for the wonderful clinic and information he's provided us. It's been outstanding. Thank you. And I also want to uh, make note, uh, Thursday, we have, uh, we'll be visiting with Mr. Randall Standridge. He'll be with us on the Virtual Band Director Conference. And then Friday, we have a bonus session. We have, uh, we, it's pre-recorded, but we have Robert Herrings and Corey Graves, an interview with those two. Uh, and then next Monday, we'll have beginning percussion with Eric Rath. So we have a wealth of fabulous educators coming on to help teach us. Um, so... As soon as Jim answers these last, this last question, he's going to drop the files in. I'm, sorry, yeah, I'm starting to drop them now. Oh. There's the there's one. I'm not sure if these are in like chronological order, how we use them through the year. Here's our first steps page. 
and that's very basic. Uh, I'm going to drop the PowerPoint, which is actually a keynote thing on Apple. And you're welcome to email me if you're not able to get these. I'll, I'll drop my email address in here. First steps. The last thing I'm dropping, this is actually a fundamentals page we use at Willowwood. Uh, we have a, a warm-up set, of course, that we go through with our full band every day. Texas is really big on, you know, we've got to spend at least 30 minutes on Concert F. Um, although we don't. Um, but then we have a fundamental page that our kids bring to sectionals that's more instrument specific. And some of this I'm sure I got from someone else. Um, but there's also, you'll see different levels of the chromatic scale on there so that they're successful on one level before they move to the other. We like our kids to come in knowing the chromatic scale when they get to our, our second year. But, um, you know, our, with our lower groups, they're not necessarily going to be playing full range yet. So there's the section fundamentals page. And I think that's everything I had put together for today. So, and then here's my email address. I'll do my home because school filters are crazy. So that way, if anybody has any questions or you're watching on Facebook and you happen to want some of this stuff, you can contact me. All right. All right. So last question is asking how you either a rotate or how do you choose kids for tenor and Barry? Um, 99% of it is interest. We want kids who are excited about playing those instruments. Uh, we'll bring uh, the instruments over to the beginner classes with Santa mist or green rubbing alcohol or whatever we happen to have. And uh, whoever gets, whoever wants to try it gets to, uh, we're usually pretty successful in drumming it up at that point. Uh, those kids tend to be on those instruments for at least the entire next school year, if not the rest of the time they're in um, at Willowwood and even into high school. Um, a lot of times when kids, our kids play ensembles, quartets, then we'll rotate. And um, like this past year, one of the alto plays, players traded uh, and he played tenor and the tenor player played alto or you know, one kid says, oh, I've always wanted to play Barry Sax. And the Barry Sax player is like, here you go, you know, and, and so uh, I want to play tenor. And so we will rotate some just so that they're exposed to all the instruments before they get to high school as much as we can. Uh, but 99% of it is on, we've been lucky. We can drum up a lot of interest in those instruments. Kids like that they might be the only one who plays that instrument in their ensemble as opposed to like, you know, since I'm a saxophone player in my top band, I might have five or six alto saxophone players and I know that's like horrific to a lot of people who want the wind ensembles but you know if they play with good sounds and they know how to control the instrument then you know they're not going to to overpower our band and if we do that's why we have a box of Nerf basketballs but um not really um but a lot of it is interest <laughs> so again thank you Jim and if you'll hang tight for just a second uh, before everybody gets out of here uh, the, the keynote, the PowerPoint is being dropped in the chat right now. It's taking a second to load. Uh, Jim's email is in the chat. Gross. If you have a I hope. It's, <laughs> you have a question, it's there. And then if Did he you freeze get, for everybody else or just for me? I'm sorry? Everybody froze. Oh, I, I don't know. As long as you can still hear us, I think we're okay. Um, and then the virtual, if, you, if you're missing documents, you need the handouts. The, you can shoot me an email at virtualbanddirectorconference at gmail.com and we'll get you all the handouts uh, that Jim used today. 
So thank you again, Jim. This has been fabulous. If you'll hang tight, we'll see you guys Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Central. Thank you for hanging with us and have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful week um, wherever you are. Stay safe and healthy. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. If you like what you heard, subscribe and check out our website, virtualbanddirectorconference.com. Thanks for joining us. And remember, there's no stealing in band when you give with an open hand.